G'day everyone and welcome to the Doctor Who Show. I'm Rob. And I'm Dave. And in this episode, wrapping up the month of July, we're finally, finally, Dave, looking at the Cybermen. After about four years of doing this show, finally, the Cybermen. Yeah, it's one of those sort of big, obvious topics that perhaps we've kind of stayed away from, but tonight we're diving into them. Yeah, but before that, how have you been? Not too bad. I literally flew back from Canberra after a week of Parliament this morning, so um, a little bit tired, but (laughs) no, doing well, doing well. Very good. Well, I was listening to our last episode recently where I kicked off saying, you know, I haven't had a cold or the flu for... (laughs) for this year in the last month in the last week i should say i've had the flu (laughs) well that's probably not made for a very good month for you (laughs) no so i'm a little under the weather i'm recovered though so i think we'll be okay i think we'll survive this episode we will and i do need to mention of course uh that carlton defeated sydney in the football in the last couple of weeks yes dave okay (laughs) and and i guess also acknowledge for our english and new zealand listeners what a fantastic Cricket World Cup they just went through. In, indeed, indeed. But I've got to say, that's Carlton's, what, their, their second win for the year or third win, Dave? Where, where, uh, where are they at? No, no, we've, we've won four of the last five with a new coach. Ah, oh, so that's four for the year. Five for the year. <laughs> that's why we've got a new coach. Brilliant. Let's kick on. We've got some podcast reviews. Actually, only one podcast review this time around. Uh, This is from Apple Podcasts by Sud67 from the United Kingdom. He says, keep up the good work, boys. Enjoy your chat every month. Short and sweet there, Dave. Oh, yes, it is. And thank you very much for taking the time to give us a pleasant, short and sweet review. Absolutely. And if anyone else feels so inclined, please do. It helps people find us on the platform. Absolutely. Alrighty, we've got a big episode this uh, this month, so let's rattle on with some news. Dave, I want to kick off with some uh, some San Diego Comic-Con news, which is essentially that Doctor Who didn't have a presence there this year, which I was really surprised by. Yeah, I was as well. San Diego Comic-Con has really become that event in the year where a lot of studios, a lot of networks, production houses, whatnot actually go and make announcements, whether it's trailer announcements, casting announcements, uh, future movie plan announcements. This is a a real platform where they they happen and there's been a lot of that go on. Uh, The Marvel Studios came out and talked about what they're going to do on TV and the movies. Uh, Trailers dropped for things like Top Gun 2, Jay and Silent Bob reboot, and Kevin Smith did a panel on that that I've had a look at. So, yeah, it feels like every player in the genre was in the room except Doctor Who. Yeah, I was mightily surprised by this. I mean, the official word from the Doctor Who production office was, oh, you know, we're busy making the show and it's still so far away. And I thought, oh, come on. You know, that you mentioned Top Gun 2 there, Top Gun Maverick. That's 12 months away. They were there at the show. Tom Cruise was there at the show talking about something coming 12 months from now. Doctor Who's going to come out before Top Gun Maverick. I, I found it absurd that they weren't there, especially, Dave, when they had such a lacklustre uh, debut season for Jodie Whittaker. Uh, you know, you and I aren't haters of the show by any means. We praised, uh, I, I don't know, maybe uh, half the episodes, say, of last season. Yep, yep. And, you know, but it was still lacklustre in general. I think this was the perfect chance to get out there on the front foot, show some new footage, show that, unlike last season, they're actually going to have some returning monsters. They're going to have some Cybermen. They're going to have some, you know... returning creatures show that you know this might be a better season than last instead no radio silence aside from 
Uh, I think it was about a 20-second Jodie Whittaker video saying, oh, you know, hello, San Diego Comic-Con. You're 50 years old. You're almost as old as Doctor Who. Yay. Goodbye. And, and, and that was it. And I'm like, no, this is, this is outrageous. I mean, I do have some sympathy for the making the show angle because I think a lot of us do remember the tales of John Nathan Turner, for example, abandoning the production and going across to America. But of course, transport now and travel now to the US from Britain is much quicker and more efficient and all the rest of it. So I put that aside, I guess. I I think you're right though, Rob, when a lot of fans' criticism of the first season was that they didn't really feel as though they'd grasped the character of Jodie Whittaker's Doctor and didn't feel they'd really grasped what Chris Chibnall wanted to do with the series. And, and you know, we're careful in how we judge them because it's their first series and they, they will no doubt develop over time. But this would be a great way to put Jodie and Chris in front of fans and let them talk a bit about what they see as the Doctor's character, where they see this Doctor going, where they see the show going, and just really start to get into the mind of fans a bit more. Because I, I really don't know what they're planning to do, whether they thought the last series was absolutely what they wanted to do and they delivered everything they wanted and it's going to be more of the same or whether they're saying, look, that was our slow burn first season. We, we get that it wasn't as whiz-bang and flash-bang as it could have been, but that was very deliberate for these reasons and, and now we're going to turn up the volume a bit. That, that would have been a really interesting discussion. I think it would have been very good for the show. So it, it is a shame to have, not have Doctor Who in the room. Mm. My gut feeling is that they were scared to be there, Dave. I think in an age where the Game of Thrones folks turned up to face the music, Game of Thrones last season was panned by a lot of fans. Admittedly, the showrunners didn't show up, but all the actors did, all the main actors, and they showed up, faced the music, even took questions about people not being happy with the final season or certain elements of it. Uh, in an age where a huge show like that can do it, I think Doctor Who could have gone and maybe taken some lumps, but I think it would have done them good in the long run to have gone there and actually talked about it, been on the front foot, and had a presence. And the one really disturbing possibility is that the BBC didn't want them there and wasn't willing to spend the money sending them because it isn't a priority for the BBC. I hope that's not the case. It is a very disappointing possibility that we should consider, though. Yeah, yeah, because especially because it would have been relatively cheap to do. I mean, it's pretty quick to flit across the Atlantic just for a weekend and show, you know, a video. I'm sure by this stage they've got some videos up showing what is going on so that the people at the BBC, the execs, can see sort of, you know, what the new season's shaping up like. They could have used some of that at Comic-Con, but not not a sausage. Yeah, look, it's a shame and we can speculate all we want about why. Uh, Let's just hope that they're back next year. Absolutely. A little news item from me, Rob, which is more about just showing how much Doctor Who is now in the public consciousness. We were talking just then about trailers launched over the last week. Well, the trailer for the movie adaption of Andrew Lloyd Webber's Cats came out. Um, The the much overhyped and (laughs) overliked musical that that has one fantastically good song in it and the rest is just tripe. But anyway. Yes. Uh, the, 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 the point was there's been a lot of comment about the way they've done the, the, the cat makeup on these anthropomorphic cats that are singing and, and dancing with CGI and people are going, well, it's very hard to do that. And a lot of people in the media and as fans and on social media said, well, actually, Doctor Who did it with prosthetics very effectively nearly 10 years ago, if, if not more than 10 years ago. And on a tiny it, budget. And on a tiny budget. So it just... 
I, I'm not going to go any further than that. I just think it was quite wonderful that Doctor Who was a reference point in what was quite a big entertainment uh, world story. Yeah, these cats in the in the musical uh, version look look really weird, Dave. They look like essentially naked humans, especially the ones that are sort of skin-coloured. They just look like naked humans, maybe with some ears stuck on. It's weird. And there's also almost this sense of the face feels like it's floating over the, the head. It's really yeah. odd. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's an odd one. Yeah. Anyway, moving on, this is a Cyberman episode, so I just thought I'd mention briefly, Dave, that Harrop, which is this little cottage industry that makes Doctor Who figurines, uh, is about to release a bunch of uh, cyber stuff from the 60s. They're going to do a Cyber Controller's Tomb Door uh, they're going to do a Tomb Cyberman and a Tomb Cyber Controller, and also some Cybermats. So they're going cyber crazy over at Harrop over the next few months. These are fairly small runs. They'll probably be like about 250 pieces each. They're not overly expensive. They're, they're quite interesting things. Hand-painted, made in the UK. Check them out at, um, at Harrop's website. Just look them up on Google and uh, see what you think. Oh, that's very cool. I, I do like those. But we'll, we'll talk more about those uh, Cyberman designs, I suspect, in a very short and while yeah i think we will so we are now at the point rob where we're getting the controlled leak of news from the production house we're getting the unnamed semi-official sources from inside the house talking about how it's going to be a new and exciting direction it's going to be a darker season all those sort of things completely outnamed there was an article in the express mentioning this before last month they had the controlled leak that the jadoon were back this month it is that the cybermen are going to be back I think we've learned, Rob, that this is how the BBC PR office operates when they are aware there is likely to be leaks from the set or fans taking photographs from filming locations. They like to get ahead of that and actually control the announcement. So I suspect this is a controlled leak. And look, it's interesting. I think that given the last series was notorious for taking the decision not to have any recurring monsters or characters, whether it was from... Uh, one season ago or 50 seasons ago it's interesting that they are deliberately leaking that there's going to be more of that to perhaps get some of the longer term fans excited yeah absolutely i mean at the time it seemed like a brave thing to do but it was like oh well maybe he's going to do something really fun you know without all these uh, legacy characters to sort of work with legacy monsters uh and no he really didn't (laughs) in fact it was all it was all these other writers who wrote the good stories (laughs) he wrote a bunch of dross and uh now we're returning to having cybermen and such and dark i don't think i could imagine this tardis team being dark you know that they always seem to say that before a new series oh it's gonna be dark and oh scary and it's like uh it never really is and i don't see this tardis team doing that anyway so i'm i'm taking it all with a pinch of salt although i am happy that some of the old monsters are back no, I, I, I think Dark is something that Doctor Who should visit now and then. It shouldn't be a tone, it shouldn't be a theme. Doctor Who is fun adventures in time and space. It does go dark from time to time when the story merits it, but that should be a contrast to the you know, the fun that, that happens, I agree. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I think that's the news, Dave. Should we move into our short topics? Yes, let's. So I just wanted to mention, I am a big fan, as you know, of the old... Doctor Who painted covers, particularly the ones that I grew up with in the 90s, and I have bought a few prints of some of them. Oh, where'd you get these from? Uh, So I bought a bunch from Andrew Skilleter's website, who had a a bit of a sale on, and in the end I actually bought eight A4 prints of some of his covers, uh, three from the new adventures of some of the books that I really enjoy, so Time Worm Genesis, Time Worm Exodus, 
and Iceberg, mm-hmm. which we'll be talking about later, I suspect. Oh, yes. And uh, I then went and bought uh, one each representative of the first five Doctors. So a combination of stories and covers I like to represent each era. So The Chase, mm-hmm. The Invasion, yeah. The Silurians, nice. The Deadly Assassin, and Earthshock. Fantastic. Uh, and I also went out and got a very nice, um, quite quite decent-sized print of one of my favourite new adventures, Bad Therapy, which was from artist Mike Salwalski's website, which I, I'm, I'm very happy with. Um, what's a shame, though, is having sort of thought, maybe I'll do a few more of these over, over the next couple of years, and every so often, there's actually not a lot that you can get. Um, Alistair Pearson, who did some of the most wonderful Doctor Who artwork uh, back in the day, doesn't sell his, his work as prints. Peter Elson, who did a lot of my favourite new adventures like High Science and Nightshade, uh, actually passed away a few years ago and his website doesn't seem to be being maintained anymore, so you can't buy from him. Oh. And there was another artist who does have a website and he sells his artwork, including his Doctor Who stuff, on T-shirts and coffee mugs, but not as prints. <laughs> oh, dear. Um, so, yeah, look, I, I, I bought some of them. Just, just, just every now and then I like to buy just a nice piece of... Doctor Who ephemera, and and this is it, and it coincides with our friends at the Doctor Who Novels Twitter feed, who a couple of years ago, you might remember Rob, we discussed with our audience, did a big vote as to what our favourite Doctor Who novel of all time was, and they went yes. through a knockout process with hundreds of books. Uh, they're now doing that with Doctor Who covers. So oh. at, at the moment, it's the early rounds where they're just working out the best cover of each story. So right now, as I... Check Twitter earlier. They're doing the mind robber. Do you like the original Target print cover or the Blue Spine Alistair Pearson re-release cover? And then when they've got one for every story, I assume they're going to go through and start knocking them out. So check out the Doctor Who novels Twitter feed. Crikey, that's even harder to pick that uh, favorite favorite novel. I think. What's interesting is I think a lot of people are voting on nostalgia, and a lot of times the original cover is winning. Uh, even when sometimes I'm finding it a little bit surprising. Not always, but often. Mm. All right, very good. Very good stuff. I, I, I do like uh, the artwork from uh, Andrew Skilleter, uh, especially, so that's that's right up my alley, actually. Oh, great. Good, yeah. good. Yeah. Uh, a quick one from me. Uh, the eighth Doctor figure from Big Chief is coming ever closer, Dave. I know you, you don't collect Big Chief, so you're probably not across this. But the eighth Doctor figure, they took the money for that, it feels like, a decade ago. Um, I paid mine in instalments, and it feels like it was so long ago. And then it just went on and on, and there was no word. And then they said, oh, look, we're going to actually change factories in China. And when we get to the new factory, we're going to have to retool everything and, you know, get them to make all the, the clothes and stuff again and, you know, do samples and basically start the process again. I, I don't know what happened there, how they dropped the ball so badly because they had a really good prototype for it when they actually solicited money for it. So they sort of knew what they were doing, but somehow the wheels all fell off and it's been a long, long time. But the, uh, the eighth doctor figure is coming close. They've got pictures of the new prototype. They're pretty happy with it. There's a few things they want to change. Like they painted it with a uh, cross eyes, uh, which didn't look so good. And, uh, the cravat wasn't quite right, but otherwise it's pretty much on track. I'm very happy about that. But in even bigger news, and I don't know if this will even interest you, Dave, big chief has finally, and this is another figure they sort of put out there a long time ago as a prototype they're finally going to start soliciting orders for their Pertwee figure oh interesting so what sort of like quality and size and price range 
are we talking about in this this production these these figures are fantastic and they get better each time they're 12 inches tall and they wear perfectly tailored clothing um which is made especially for the range uh i think of my hartnell figure for example he has a waistcoat with that hartnell i don't know what you call that pattern on his waistcoat but they replicated that at a tiny size to for this 12 inch figure to wear and they go into so much detail with the paint applications on the faces because it's really just the faces that you see the rest of it's just a generic figure dressed in clothing Sure. Uh, and on the faces though they go to town and and the eyes look realistic the eyes look glistening and wet the 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 lips look correct the um the eccleston figure i've got has got freckles on his face you know <laughs> really subtle freckles and they are they are a very good thing and the pertwee figure is looking fantastic um, i'm very excited they always come with multiple hands but some of the pertwee hands are going to come with gloves I love oh, that. Okay. <laughs> I love that gloved look that Pertwee sometimes has. Yes. You know, yes. like running around. I, I think it's Inferno. He's running around with gloves on. I'm sure, and I just love that look. And so I'm, I'm very excited that they're finally doing Pertwee, and he looks fantastic. Excellent. And and price? Uh, if you get in early, I think he'll be about, and you pay up front. I think he'll be about 180 pounds. Okay. So not super cheap, but they are a very, very quality thing. I think if mm. you pay in installments uh, over four months, I think it might be about 190 pounds around yep. that. Yeah. Okay. Cool. Yeah, very cool. Uh, and speaking of merchandise, I had been hoping that we would be able to make some comments on Eric Saywood's Resurrection of the Daleks novel tonight. <laughs> now, I have seen a number of UK fans have got their copies and have been showing photos on social media. I haven't actually seen much yet about what they think of it. I think this has been a bit of a real slow burn. It hasn't had a lot of uh, publicity, certainly, that I've seen. And I think people are going to find this novel a bit over time. And uh, maybe the next time we chat, Rob, we can talk about that and Revelation of the Daleks, which is coming later in the year. But I'm, I'm really curious <laughs> as to how Eric writes this novel. I've got two things to say. One is that I have seen a comment from a person on Twitter and they were saying, oh, I don't like how this is written. It's not written very well. And I don't know this person, so I don't know whether this person was expecting like a, a new adventure type sort of level of writing or, <laughs> or whether, you know, maybe Eric's written it in sort of a target style and this person just doesn't get the target style or something or maybe yeah. it is just not written well i honestly don't know it's only one comment and i didn't know the person involved so i can't take much from that uh one thing i can take something from though is there is an eric saywood interview doing the rounds on youtube uh where he sits down with matthew sweet to talk about writing these books and in typical Eric style, he's very dry. His answers aren't very forthcoming. <laughs> Although he, does, he, does, he answers a few of them in, a, in a quite a funny way and has a bit of a smile at times. Um, at one point, Matthew Sweet asks him if he's a sadist because of all the violence during his era in Doctor Who, which I thought was quite a brave thing to ask. Okay. I had seen the link to that interview floating around on Twitter. I haven't had time in the last week to watch it, so I will make a point of doing that. Yeah, give it a crack. It's only about 10 minutes long. Yeah. Um, it's something I, I think I'd like to see appear on Blu-rays in the future. You know, I just love if they'd grab all this footage and just have it on the Blu-rays in, yeah. in the future. Because, I mean, obviously we haven't done Davison's third se season yet. So it's a perfect thing to put on it. No, very true. Very true. And yeah, I'm, I'm genuinely looking forward to this one. I really am. Yeah, good one. All right, Dave. We've now uh, got through the news and our short topics and we're into the main event. 
Cyberman Dave, the Silver Giants at long last. Yes. So, uh, do you want me to give some opening thoughts, or will you, Rob? Oh, I think we'll both have something to say, Dave. <laughs> well, look, I'll I'll kick us off because I know I know you're a big fan, and I'm I I struggle sometimes to really know where I land on the Cybermen. I love most of the Cybermen stories. In fact, I love a, quite a lot of Cybermen stories, certainly in the classic season, certainly in the 60s. I like the idea of the Cybermen, but there's a part of me that feels as though they never quite lived up to their real potential, that they never quite delivered on the premise, and they'd sometimes just almost an incidental monster in an otherwise very good story and i'm looking forward to teasing this out as to when they work and when they don't and why they work and why they don't and maybe i'm overthinking things and i'm really conflicted on on these ones compared to something like the daleks which i just say love the concept love almost all of their stories uh you know classic 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 cyberman's harder for me so rob Rob, you you pitched this topic so Mm -hmm. I'll, i'll ask you you know what what's What's your your feeling? I always yeah you've al- you've already touched on something I I'm going to pick up on as well which is I'm not sure they're always used well. And when I go back through the series, I see missed opportunities when it comes to their stories. Interestingly though, the further we go back, the more I like them, uh, which I think we'll probably tease out as we go through each decade. Mm, yeah. But I'll just say up front, yes, they haven't been used well. I think they were better used in the past than they currently are. Having said that, I think their most recent outing on our screens was one of their best ever. So that's... Yeah, yep. (laughs) You know, I I don't want to seem like I'm contradicting myself, but gosh, they're they're sort of a hard thing to to love. But love them, I do. Well, let's throw into the 60s then. And I'll, I'll, I'll start with this opening comment. They appear properly in five stories in the 60s, four of which are Troughton stories. There is not one on that list that I think is a bad story, and four of the five, I think, are in the range of excellent to classic. Okay, I only slightly disagree insofar as I've never been too fussed on the moon base, but Tenth Planet, Tomb, Wheel in Space, Invasion, I think are all wonderful. Mm. So they're very good stories there. Are they very good stories because of the Cybermen? Or are they very good stories in which the Cybermen appear? And I think it splits. I think I think Tenth Planet and Tomb are very good stories and very good cyber stories. They, the Cybermen are integral to those plots. The concept of them is really important and fundamental to those plots. Moonbase, Will in Space and Invasion... Could it be any monster? Does it have to be the Cybermen? I, I think it could. I mean, I mean, the invasion is Tobias Vaughn's story, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, there's a techie edge there too, and I, I think, you know, it suits the Cybermen more than, say, the Daleks to use the other big monster in Doctor Who. That's true, yeah, no, good point. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I'll, yeah, yeah. Mm. But I, I see what you mean. It, it doesn't necessarily have to be the Cybermen, you know. If, if for some reason they couldn't get the rights to them, they could have done something else there. And it would have been like, oh, I don't know, the war machines or something. <laughs> or, or, you know, if it was the white robots from the Mind Robber, uh, you know, that that would still work as a story and as a concept. But but you're right, though, that the electronic thing comes in. One of the reasons as well why I think Tenth Planet and Tomb 
work is that there is this overt sense through both stories about them being people, humanoids, humans from a twin planet Mondas and later Telos who who have become cybernized. It's very overt in the Tenth Planet. There, there are those wonderful classic speeches about feelings and you know, don't you care? Well, there are people dying all over this world. You don't care about them. Why do you just care about this one? And all, all those wonderful things. Tomb doesn't do it quite as overtly, but you do get the partial cybernization of Toberman and, and mm. that real de, dehumanizing of him as part of that process, which which is very important. I think it's very telling that the cliffhanger to part two of Tomb of the Cybermen is not the big exciting moment of the Cybermen burst from their tombs and then the Cyber Controller comes out and it's, wow, Cybermen. It's a moment later when the Cyberman says, you belong to us, you will be like us. Mm. That's the real threat of the Cybermen. And Tomb's really good like that. Yeah, look, completely agree with you there. Uh, 10th Planet and Tomb sort of do bring out the, the Cybermen to their, to their fullest. Uh, I sometimes wonder whether the black and white era suits the Cybermen. I know that might seem a strange thing to talk about, but it's the only era we're going to look at here that is in black and white. And I just have this feeling that sometimes they, the Cybermen come across better in black and white. They're almost monochrome, even when they're in colour. Uh, and mm. so, whereas Daleks, I think, look fantastic in colour. You think of the colour movies from the 60s and how yes. the Daleks would be coloured and they look amazing. Whereas the monochrome type Cybermen, I think, do they sort of work better in the 60s, just big and menacing and in the shadows a bit? And I don't yeah, know. Yeah, I, I definitely think there is. I mean, when you think of some of the best Cybermen scenes from the moon base, from Tomb, uh, from Wheel, oh, the, the sewer scene in the invasion, they are all ones where they are these sort of semi-lit in the shadows sort of moments when they can loom over people or sneak up on people. And that's that's really powerful. But the other thing is, and perhaps we can talk a bit about their design here, Rob. Mm. The 60s, I, I guess, by, by reality of budget, has this feeling of not a cobbled together sort of thing, but a, a very utilitarian sort of design to them, a very sort of practical design to them in a, in a way that later designs, I think, are, are still very good but they look designed. They, they look as though something with a sense of aesthetics has put them together rather than something with just a, a sense of pragmatics. Yeah, that's right. And I was also going to add, what a clever kind of design. It is a man in a suit because it is a man in a suit. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> if you know what I mean. I, I think that's one of the cleverest things about the Simon, whereas you have other monsters that might be uh, ripped reptile-like and rubber suits and things like that. Yeah, well, that's a man in a rubber suit trying to be a reptile. This is, well, it's a man in a suit, but that's exactly what it's meant to be. Oh, my God. You know, I, I think that's very clever, actually. I'll ask, Rob, is your favourite cyber design in the 60s? Oh, it's, it's split, and one of the designs is from the 60s. <laughs> It's split for me as well, and both of them are. <laughs> uh, look, my, my favourite design is that early Trout and Moonbase Tomb wheel one. I just I just love the, the way it's sort of put together, but very close and very worthy is, is the 10th Planet slash World Enough and Time Mondaysian design. Yeah, look, I, I like that a lot, but my favourite look from the 60s is the Invasion. Okay. And and it's it's equal first with the the 80s look and i guess we just call it the earth shock look yeah 
the, the, the David Banks look. Yeah, absolutely. And I note that neither of us like the, the new Who Cyberman. Uh, no, but look, we'll, we'll, we'll talk more about their design when we, when we get there. Yes. Um, interesting contrast I just wanted to make as well between Daleks and Cybermen. When, when you look at the Dalek stories in the 1960s, seven parts, six parts, six parts, 12 parts, six parts, seven parts. Mm-hmm. They're, they're, they're big epic stories. You know, we've, we've got the Daleks who are doing a big thing. Uh, not quite the same with the Cybermen. Four parts, four parts, four parts, standard size. Six for Wheel in Space and then eight for the Invasion. And in those, both those cases, very much, I think, because the production was just uh, desperate to make as much Doctor Who as they could with very little resources and things were falling through so quick. Add an episode to that one, add two to that one and, and get them out. Mm. Uh, so, so, you know, I think the Cybermen have benefited from generally tighter stories. That is true. I mean, when I look to pull a cyber story off the shelf here at home, it, it is generally a shorter story, and that's always appreciated because I I have the attention span of a gnat these days, Dave. And, and that's not Doctor Who's problem, but it, it certainly does help that these stories are, are shorter. Yeah, that that is interesting. And yet, I'm trying to think... I'm trying to compare the way Daleks are characterised in the 60s and the way Cybermen are characterised... And I'm just trying to think, were they even harder to write for back then? And they didn't want to stretch them out across these long stories. Yeah, maybe. And that's probably the last point I've got to make for the 60s, is that there is that sort of quest as to how we're going to get them into the dialogue. In the 10th planet, they're incredibly chatty. And they've, mm. they've, got, they've got those computerised but quite chatty voices Afterwards, they sort of go back to that very computerized sort of voice. Um, Moonbase, they're just a bunch of Cybermen. Tomb, you get the introduction of the Cyber Controller, which is a one-off at that stage. Mm-hmm. And then you get the Cyber Planner that comes in to wheel and invasion. So there's this sort of quest of, can we get something in there that can talk in a slightly more natural or more detailed thing? And, and certainly in the case of the Cyber Planner or the Cyber Coordinator, is, I can't remember which is which, but it's one in one and one in the other. Mm-hmm. Uh, Something that can basically be an exposition machine and do a lot of those sort of dialogue dubs. But, as we mentioned earlier, by the invasion, they're actually bringing in Tobias Vaughan and they've realised that having a human traitor actually is very, very useful for the Simon and is a, is a theme we will be talking about, I suspect. I think so. I've got to say, out of all the 60s voices, though, I think I prefer the 10th Planet Cyberman. <laughs> <laughs> it is very cool, isn't it? And and, and that, that effect, uh, and it does carry on with a couple of the Trouton designs as well, that, that effect of the mouth opening wide and a voice coming out mm. is really, really creepy, really, really dehumanised. Yeah, absolutely. And and just the, the sing-song style, I, I just find so, you know, compared to the other voices, which are just more like robot voices... Uh, I just find it so much more interesting and, and creative, actually. I'm surprised they didn't continue with it. And it's kind of a good example of predicting the future because we now get those computer voices where it's very clearly a number of syllables. You know, you bring up some answer service or some automatic service and it's not words. They're, they're, they're very clearly syllables sort of jumped together to make a, 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 a word by the computer. And it does sound very Cyberman-like because the intonation's wrong and the... The inflections are wrong. Yeah, yeah. You have dialed four, seven, six, eight, two, yeah, three. Yeah, yeah I, I, I totally understand what you're saying, and you're quite right. 
Dave, to just to wrap up on the sixties, I I want to say it is. I I believe it's my favourite era for the Cybermen. You know, for this show, I've been looking at the full list of stories, and I just think, yeah, there's something about that black and white look. There's something about the stories there. Maybe it's because we're seeing these things happen for the first time. Uh, maybe because the stories are pretty straightforward adventures and aren't trying to do really weird stuff like we might get to uh, later, especially in New Who. I, I have a real fondness for 60s Cybermen in general. Look, I think it's well established. I'm a fan of the 60s and I totally agree. As I said, all five of the cyber stories from the 60s I will very happily watch. I, I like The Wheel in Space. I think it is the weakest of the bunch. Um, that's probably a fairly popular opinion i do think it's a very good fun adventure um 10th planet is a classic tomb is a definitely a classic the invasion is definitely a classic and the moon base i think is pretty cool as well so mm. they're just kicking it out of the park in this this stage and you you can see why they very quickly earned that reputation as being the number two monster absolutely right because they're first introduced in 66 and we get all these stories by 69 because we're going to talk the 70s now, Dave, and it's it's slim pickings. Uh, there is only one story for the <laughs> so, so entire we're going to talk decade. Reve- so we're going to talk Revenge of the Cybermen. Yeah, which which takes half a decade to come along, and then there's nothing in the half a decade after that. It It is incredible how we go from really ramping these uh, monsters up and looking great in black and white, looking fantastic against Troughton, and poor old Pert doesn't get a go at all. Well, he gets a little go in Five Doctors, but, you know... No, but I think it's it's really obvious and really interesting when you look at what that production team and what Pertwee himself enjoyed, when they point at races like the Draconians, which were very nuanced, cultured sort of peoples. Pertwee always talks about you know, the use of the half masks in monst- monsters in here is era like the Draconians, where you can see the eyes and the mouth and you can sort of get that, that response that I think as an actor he really much preferred. If that's what you're going for, the Cybermen kind of had not that at all like they're the opposite of that yeah but the counter to that is Pertwee gets a lot of Dalek stories and to my mind if you're going to try and play with the idea of uh, people I know you can't see the eyes and such but the thought of people being inside the Cybermen versus Daleks I think they could have mined it a little because why do all the uh, Dalek stories otherwise well I guess they saw the Daleks as being a guaranteed ratings success Mm. You, you put the Daleks in, you get ratings. Uh, maybe they didn't see the Cybermen being like that. Maybe it's just as simple as the fact that uh, people like Kit Peddler had moved on at that stage or, or been subtly moved on and no one else was pitching a Cyberman story. I, I imagine people are always pitching, hey, I want to do this great Dalek story and being quietly told by the script editor, well, you know, you don't just get to do a Dalek story, mate. Um, yeah, true. I, I, I wonder how, you know, what Bob Baker and Dave Martin sitting there going, I really want to do a Simon story. Probably not. Uh, and don't forget, the Dalek stories are written by Terry Nation in two out of three cases. So that's a personal choice he's making, I suppose. Yeah, that's true. Another thing I'll just throw out there, though, we often talk, well, not just we, but fans in general, talk about the invasion being, you know, a prototype unit story and a prototype 70s story. And yet the subject of that story doesn't appear in the 70s uh, until 1975 and a whole new Doctor on board. <laughs> No, look, it's true, and and don't get me wrong. I, I wish that there had been a cyber story in the Pearl era. I think I think that would have been really good. I think, as you alluded to there, Rob, Unit v Cyberman is a really interesting and very cool concept. Uh, but but I kind of understand 
given the what the production team were going for, I get why it didn't happen, I suppose. Mm. Which I guess does bring us to Revenge of the Cybermen. Uh, let's talk about it, Dave. It's not a wonderful story, but it holds a special place in my heart because it was one of the first BBC videos. And for that reason alone, it was something that I could bring home from the video shop and watch over and over and over again. And it's, you know, it's it's eminently watchable. It's it's early Tom Baker. It's fantastic. Uh, but maybe not a great story in general. It certainly was, up until the discovery of Tomb, the earliest Cyberman story that was complete. And indeed, of those first 560 stories, we didn't mention that four of the five of them are incomplete. Hmm. So therefore, I think it is a lot of people's first exposure to the Cybermen. It was certainly repeated a lot on Australian television. I'm very fond of it. I, I think it's a really effective story. I like the Cybermen in it. They they do appear powerful. I mean, those scenes on Voga where two Cybermen sort of almost wipe out the entire planet, it feels like. <laughs> you know, that, that, that is them being treated very seriously. The, do- the Doctor is scared of them. Sarah is scared of them. They are, hmm. they are not easy to knock out. Even, even when... Gold dust is introduced, and that, that leads me on to another point in a moment. The gold dust still doesn't kill them. They still need to be blown up with a big bomb or killed by, you know, have, have the gold injected into them by their own cybermats. And the cybermats are terrifying. So there's a lot of good stuff in there. But I, I want to come back to a point about what revenge introduces, but I'll, I'll let you say a bit more first, Rob. Yeah, and look, when it's our only Tom Baker Cyberman story, when it's our only 70s Cyberman story, when it's our only colour well the first colour Cyberman story it it does sort of you know earn a special place just by being all those firsts but yeah I can see the problems with it you know at the same time you're right it is flawed in its execution in some ways great fun adventure very fond of it but but it is an imperfect story but it does set up so much of that 80s David Banks cyber era the cyber leader first introduced here this is the one that really beds down that idea of the human operative or the human traitor that becomes a bit of a theme going on in later ones. Their vulnerability to gold is introduced here. All, all these sort of little ideas that get used probably better in future stories do come out of revenge. Oh, absolutely. These these things that I would watch this story and think, oh, well, they're, they're allergic to gold. Oh, okay, that, that must be how it's always been. And yet that was quite a new thing to be introducing there. Yeah, absolutely. You know, after all these 60s stories, suddenly we have all this new information about them. We have the concept of the glitter gun, which yes. which sounds very camp now, I think, Dave. <laughs> <laughs> the glitter gun, my God. But at the time it sounded, oh, wow, they got this weapon, the glitter gun. Wow, amazing, you know. Yeah. To a kid, I thought this was, you know, quite fun. Even the idea of the cyber wars having happened a few decades earlier, for example. Again, a big concept that it introduces, I don't think makes full use of. But yeah, it, it's, a, it's a pivotal cyber story. A, a fun one, an imperfect one. Yeah, the concept of the cyber wars, you know, we often talk about how we'd like things to be covered with a line. I guess it's a little more than a line, but it does give an excuse for why there's just a, a few cybermen in this ship, you know, sort of clunking around the galaxy. <laughs> You know, because there has been this cyber war. Yes, very, very much so. Uh, yeah. We need to probably mention the the, 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 the hands-on hips, slightly more uh, excitable <laughs> nature of the Cybermen. Please, go for it. Uh, look, look, it, it, is, it is consistently mentioned as a, the 
sort of criticism that fanboys make about about this the series. It never really bothered me until it was pointed out to me, and then I kind of got the criticism. Uh, we will talk later about the um, non-TV iterations of the Cybermen in part, and in The Killing Ground, which features these particular Cybermen, there is actually a comment about how they understand human psychology, and whilst they don't particularly feel the emotion, imitating emotion can help to render humans scared or render humans pliable and that sort of thing, which I think was a nice little bit of retconning. It is, it is, because, you know, as, as all fans listening to this will know, that a big thing was made out of they have removed all emotions, and yet we see them on screen being emotional all the time, and it's like, what? <laughs> you know? Well, well, that's right, and I think that we sometimes forget that the removal of emotions doesn't remove the understanding of emotions. The Cybermen are fairly consistently written and portrayed as absolutely understanding emotions. They understand what makes humans tick. They understand how to manipulate them. There's, there's never sort of one of those, is, is this the human emotion you call friendship? You know, there's, there's, there's none of that sort of stuff going on in there. Yes, Crichton. <laughs> they, they, they understand what greed is. They understand what fear is. They understand what loyalty is. So even though they don't personally feel them, they're willing to use them in others. And I think that's a really important distinction. Yeah, that, that is a nice way to put it, actually, from that novel. But we'll get there. We will. So, the 80s. Oh, the 80s. The 80s start with one of the greatest stories in Doctor Who of all time. And it's a Davo story, Dave. You knew I was going to wax lyrical about this one. <laughs> <laughs> it's, yes. it's Earthshock. After eight years, the Cybermen return. JNT keeps them off the front cover of Radio Times. And I think fans across the UK were genuinely shocked at the end of that first episode when they not only saw Cybermen, but a new design of Cybermen that is equal first. Favourite look for me, I just think 80s Cybermen when they turned up here looked amazing. And they still look amazing. Look, I agree. They still look very, very amazing. To me, they're a little bit over-designed. Um, but that's kind of getting very fanboy in my own my own sense and very oh well they're not, they're not meant to have a sense of aesthetics well okay I'm you know criticizing myself again a bit there but yeah yes they they look amazing they're introduced in such a good story that is very well written it's it's Eric Saywood really probably writing his best script it's Peter Grimway just coming in and absolutely smashing that direction just cut after cut after cut quick tight scenes money has been spent on this. It is a great introduction, but it does build on the law, as I was talking about before. Yes. Yeah. Oh, look, absolutely. Uh, I think it just picks up where we left off. And, you know, for fans of the show, I mean, a lot of new fans would have been watching this and seeing Cybermen for the first time. But for people who were aware of the Cybermen, there, there is a sense of continuity here, perhaps, at last. You know, there maybe wasn't as much in the 60s, but here from Revenge to Earthshock, we, we do have a sense that, oh, this is all starting to fall into place and these are the Cybermen. They're allergic to gold, you know, this, that and the other. That's a good thing. It, it is. And again, we see their ability to understand and manipulate humanoids. The way that they manipulate Ringway into becoming a human traitor and betraying his people is very effective. That, that, that really good scene where... The cyber leader threatens Tegan's mm. life to, to get the doctor to do what he wants. And he says, yeah, this, this proves that emotions are a weakness. He, he knows what how it works. He just doesn't feel them himself. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. And I was watching that scene just the other night. I was watching a YouTube video on the Davison era. And it, it pulled out that scene, I think, more for the um, 
when did you last have a well-prepared meal line? It was, I think it was trying to make fun of that, but you know, <laughs> we won't go down that rabbit hole. In general, I love the way the cyber leader talks in this story. Yeah, it's a really good performance. Another reason why this stands out, and I want to do a bit of a sidebar here, Rob, into a bit of a general sort of mm. topic. Yeah. One thing that's really interesting about the Cybermen in the classic series particularly is that unlike the Daleks, they're never really this big conquering force. The, the Daleks always had a, an empire. We always talked about Dalek fleets and thousands of Daleks and Dalek planets. There's always this sense that they were out there. The Cybermen are always just desperate to survive. Yeah, absolutely. And that's a very sort of uh, melancholic, it's a, it's a very sad sort of way to be. Yeah, they, they're, they're trying to conquer Earth because they need somewhere to establish and, and to, to grow. The Tomb of the Cybermen is all about them having run out of power and space and energy and having to sort of recharge for a bit and go into hibernation. The Invasion, they have a big fleet and that's kind of cool. In Earthshock, they have a big fleet and that's really cool. But even in Earthshock, they openly make the point that a straight-out battle with between the Earth Empire and the Cybermen, they would be defeated. Hence, they're doing this almost terrorism sort of thing. They're, they're going in and, well, let's blow up the planet Earth before we even start the war, because yeah. we know we'll be beaten. You, you can't imagine the Daleks doing that. Although the Daleks would have their plague bombs and you know weaken mankind in different ways, the Daleks always had this idea that, well, if it comes to a straight you versus us, we'll smash you. Yeah. Um, overconfident, it turns out, particularly when the Doctor turns up. But the Cybermen don't have that cockiness. They're always written as being just on the edge of extinction in some ways. Yeah, and you know, that's probably some of their appeal for me as well. They are on the verge of extinction. They they aren't as cocky or brash. Oh, they talk a good game sometimes, but you know, there is that, as I say, that, that sadness behind them as well, that they've turned themselves into this race. And where are they going? What are they doing with it? It's it, they, they seem quite doomed. Yeah, and, and that's why it's fun to see them in Earthshock. What I think is probably the height of their power and even that isn't very high no no not not at all but dave there are two other cyberman stories in the 80s i don't think anywhere near as successful or well regarded as Earthshock. no certainly not as well regarded attack of the cyberman i kind of put in there with revenge as being a, a pretty decent fun story the, the the Cybermen get some cool stuff to do. It, yeah, it's 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 okay. They are at least a powerful and effective force, but again, on the edge of extinction, sort of battling for survival. Mm. You get the return of the Cyber Controller. True, true, and he's eaten all the pies. Yes, yeah. Well, that, <laughs> the, the, there is that one that wonderful line where the uh, the Cybermen in control turns to him, and I'm sure the line is meant to be, "It is a fact, Controller." But it certainly sounds like he's a fat controller. <laughs> brilliant, brilliant. Um, but then moves on to Silver Nemesis, where, you know, Andrew Cartmel says, I didn't realise it was pretty much the same plot as Remembrance of the Daleks. I think, how is that possible? You were the script editor of the show. And so not only is it a, a sort of an underwhelming story, it, it retreads pretty much beat for beat something that happened earlier in the season with the Daleks in a much more successful way. Yeah, it does, and it also kind of makes the Cybermen guest stars or second tier in what should be their story. Mm. They are they are competing for story time, not only with the Doctor, as they should, but with Lady Painfort, 
with the Nazis and the Flores. And because they're also need to be sort of competing with these other baddies, they almost sort of brought down so they're on par with these baddies. So, okay, one of them's playing with machine guns, one of them's playing with, with bows and arrows. Yes, gold and poison tipped and all the rest of it, but the Simon kind of have to be drawn down to a, a level where they are an equal third of the story. Mm. And that is unfortunate. Uh, this story also highlights for me probably the biggest problem I have with the Cybermen of this era, and that is that they don't feel like the Silver Giants of the 60s. You, you look at the way the Cybermen in the 60s just tower over people. They, they tower over Hartnell. They definitely tower over Troughton. Now, McCoy, Sylvester McCoy is not a particularly tall actor. I think he's shorter than I am, and I'm certainly not very tall. Mm. But I never get that sense of the Cybermen really sort of towering over him. And and indeed, when they, they, they play against Colin and, and Peter, they they almost sort of go eyeball for eyeball. Yeah, it's, it's something that is lost from the 60s where a big thing was made about their height, wasn't it? They were, they were over seven foot tall. They were the Silver Giants. Yeah. Uh, and I mean, David Banks is is a tallish guy, but it, it doesn't seem that being a particularly tall person was a, you know, a prerequisite for the actors they hired in the 80s. No, it, it, it wasn't. And I think, I think that is a shame. I think that is lost. Um, I also think that Silver Nemesis suffers from the cuts that were made again because it was just so overcrowded mm. um you you look at a lot of stuff that even even wasn't in the extended edition that is a cut from that and that has a lot more of the stuff about what the sidemen did with de flores and his henchmen and the, the the partial conversions and sort of going down that sort of path similar to what they did in attack i think i think so in attack tries to bring that back with Lytton's policeman being cybertized in the first episode mm. Lytton himself being partially cybertized and, and meeting the officer the offcut sort of the the the, the um, uh, rejected cyber conversions. Yeah, I think that's actually a really clever and good use of the Cyberman that is perhaps a little bit forgotten because it is such a dense, continuity-heavy sort of story. Yeah, I know what you mean. It, it is interesting those guys, you know, on on Telos, you know, working out in the, I want to say in the fields, but it's not really the fields, is it? It's, it's just kind of this rocky sort of in the crappy quarry, place in the quarry. The, these guys in the quarry, so they are they are halfway to being Cybermen, but because they haven't got the helmets on and they're still human, they can have human conversations, and it, it's that interesting halfway point, I think. Which, uh, yeah, not enough probably does get made of that actually in Attack of the Cybermen. No, no, but certainly the conversion process is shown to be a. Um, uh, a nasty one and that does add to the threat of the Cybermen in that story yeah so look uh, rounding out the 80s Dave I do want to mention their appearance in the Five Doctors I, I jotted down two Cybermen do get a, a mention in the War Games and Carnival of Monsters for a couple of extra 60s and 70s appearances but it's really the Five Doctors in the 80s where they do get a fairly lengthy scene where they get massacred by the Raston Warrior robot and Pertwee gets to sort of share sort of screen time with them. They, You know, he's, he's watching this happen. Yes, it's it's a very cool set of scenes. Uh, the Cybermen get to be the big villain of the story in a way that the Daleks weren't, which is kind of cool. Terrence Dix gets to write them and has fun basically massacring Eric Saywood's famous favourite monster just to make a bit of fun of Eric Saywood, which is sort of, you know, that lovely thing between writers. Um, it works very well. And, um, yeah, I, I like them in The Five Doctors. Yeah. I just thought it was worth a quick mention there before we move on to New Who. Cool. Well, let's move on to New Who then. 
New Who, Dave. Ugh. There is a great story in here. Uh, there's an all right story. And the rest, I'm not too fussed about at all. Yeah, look, I've said a number of times, and I stand by this, I think there are classic monsters of the New Who has done extremely well, and the Daleks are top of that list. There are classic monsters that the new series has not done very well, and the Cybermen, sadly, are top of that list. Maybe I'm being a bit harsh, I don't know. Uh, I think there's, as you said, one absolute classic. I think we both agree it's World Enough and Time, The Doctor Falls. Yes. I don't like the robotic, uniform-stomping nature of the Cybermen. I just think it's corny and cheesy. I've got over with time the fact that these are not the Cybermen of our universe, but are the Cybermen of an alternate universe with a completely different uh, creation story. Uh, you know, when that first happened, I was sort of like, oh, they can't do that now. Yeah, well, of course they can. Who cares? I've got over that. Um, <laughs> but then you sort of get into the Moffat era and it's like, well, we've now just got fleets of Cybermen going around because, sure, it, mm. it, it all doesn't quite work, but let's not be slaves to continuity. I think the problem with the Cybermen in the new era is they just don't have many awesome stories. I just don't understand how initially Russell T. Davis doing Rise of the Cybermen, Age of Steel, Army of Ghosts, Doomsday, The Next Doctor, uh, how someone like that can be so steeped in Doctor Who lore and understand innately what Cybermen are and what their premise is and not want to ramp that up. I don't understand that at all, and I've never seen it addressed in interviews. I've never seen someone put it to him. Like, do you, do you just not get them? Or do you get them and wanted to make them robots instead? Like, but, 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 but surely, surely, Rob, that is simply an example of modern sensibilities. You, you couldn't do the body horror stuff of, of the 60s sort of Cyberman concept in a modern audience. I mean, I mean you, you just can't in a family-friendly audience. Surely it is Russell T. Davies making a decision he makes consistently in his time as a showrunner, which is what's going to appeal to the mass audience and I think in that sense he made the right call it doesn't work for me I'm not the mass audience though yeah I mean uh, the, a couple of things to say to that is well look World Enough and Time did it and people loved it uh, well, well, did, did people love it or did we love it <sighs> like like, like it's, it's, it's an unprovable I'm, I'm, I'm being deliberately difficult on this one but it, it is an unprovable yeah, that's fine. Well, well, the second thing I was going to say was, you know, in the Russell T. Davis era, he does show people being lined up and, and, and marched into a room where they're just going to be hacked to pieces by saws and things, and their, their heads, their brains are going to end up in these cyber units. And I think that well, that's, that's kind of body horror. It's kind of showing what's happening. It's kind of showing that they're not robots. But then on screen, they just act like robots and do march in unison like they're Soviet-era soldiers. And it's yeah, just... I, I don't get this. I yeah, really don't get it. I, I think Age of Steel and Rise of the Cybermen does pull back from where it could have gone, and I think it must be deliberate. That that, that, that scene of the, the mass cyber conversions is sort of covered with what I thought was almost a cartoonish sort of set of graphics and ideas, you know, flying sort of scissors through the air and laser beams and people screaming in the background. I, I, I get they were doing I get that's probably as far as they could go. Mm. Uh, I think it falls short. I, I would have liked to see a bit more made of this idea of the fact that all the first people converted into Cybermen were the homeless and the the um, unwanted, in inverted commas, from society. You know, the, the, the leftovers of society, the poorest of society. 
I thought that was a really interesting thing they could have done and they kind of pulled back from. Which was something he was retreading from the final Eccleston story where, you know, the, the Emperor Daleks talking about how he, they, they took the refugees and they filleted them and, you know, turned them into Dalek yeah. and, and so on. So Davis is almost, you know, cribbing from his own work there. Yeah, but I think it works better as a concept with the Cybermen. I mean, there, there are some very wonderful moments. I, I think that that moment of the creation turning on the creator is, is done very well there. The Lumix, I will convert only with my last breath, then breathe no more. You know, that's a wonderful moment. There is some wonderful visuals in there. It's not it's not terrible. We're, we're probably panning it more than I think we mean to. Again, they probably captured the public imagination to a reasonable extent, so it wasn't a success in that sense. Yes. Again, I just don't think these stories are as good as they could have been. No, no, not at all. I mean, something like Closing Time, I think, is successful as a as a comedy piece, although we have sort of already seen most of that shtick done already in The Lodger. The Cybermen are almost, you know, tacked onto the end of that story, uh, as I recall. Yeah, I, I think Closing Time is an example of a perfectly watchable 42 minutes of television that's kind of imminently forgettable. And by that stage, probably a lot of the ideas had been done before and it did feel very familiar nightmare in silver i think you know let's get neil gaiman on board he's a fantastic writer the last time he wrote for doctor who it was amazing let's give him the cyberman this will be just incredible and it just falls on its face Uh, i couldn't believe that you see i i actually really enjoyed nightmare of silver really yeah I, i remember watching that and thinking oh wow this is this is the first good episode in ages. I mean, I'm, this is possibly the best of the season. I'm really enjoying this. And then, <laughs> then, then sort of going on social media and finding, oh, wow, not many people agree with me on this one. Wow. Um, it was really interesting. Yeah. Uh, I, I, I actually like that, that Matt Smith scene. I think it was a really good idea and good attempt to do something interesting with the Cybermen. I think giving them an extra physical ability... Is it a bit cheesy? Sure, but at least they're trying to do something a bit different and making them less of a clunking robot thing. I, I thought it was a perfectly good, fun adventure that, that, that did interesting things with the Cybermen. Yeah, look, don't get me wrong. There, there are elements of it I like. I liked the, the setting for it. I thought it was quirky and, and interesting. Uh, you know, and there's some great lines in it because Gaiman is a is a great writer. Um, yeah, but on the whole, it just fell flat for me. But not as flat, Dave, as Dark Water, Death in Heaven. <laughs> Are I'll you say, triggered? I'll <laughs> say it. Yes. Worst story ever. Yeah, it's not good. Look, it, it's not good. I mean, once again, the Cybermen are second fiddle in, in the story. They are... Uh, second to what Missy's doing they're kind of just there because well I'm not quite sure why but again some good moments that that idea of seeing the skeletons in the water and not realizing they're Cybermen because you can only see that stuff and then as the water disappears you see they're Cybermen I thought that was a really clever mm-hmm. idea a really obvious idea but a clever one um, the, the the door shutting to have the, the eyes was a really good moment I, I I pay them that but the the flying Cybermen that looked terrible yeah i I think moffat's just looked at these kids playing with iron man toys and thought i've got an (laughs) idea uh yeah look look i don't want to beat this story up i I do that often enough it it doesn't work for me i I think the cybermen are kind of there 
as an afterthought, it doesn't quite work. I think the the stuff with Cyber Danny, I can see what he's trying to do, and I just think it completely misses the mark. The Cyber Brigadier is terrible. It's an awful, horrible concept. Mm. The, the way the Cybermen are kind of created by... Uh, it just doesn't work for me, Rob. I, I, if I'm being generous, I can kind of see what he was trying to do, but it just... It just doesn't work, and it's just a horrible, nasty story. Yeah, it's going to rain, and then the the dust that's in people's graves, these are graves that have been around for a while, people are just going to be dust in them, Dave. Somehow yeah. that can become a cyber... Oh, yeah, forget it. Yeah. Look, before we get on to other media, I just want to briefly sort of look at where we've been so far. We've looked at the 60s, where there were more stories than in the 70s and 80s combined. Uh, and we both seem to like the 60s more than the 70s and 80s. Uh, and then in New Who, we're not too fussed with most of the stories, except for World Enough and Time and The Doctor Falls, which we think is brilliant. So it's all over the shop when it comes to Cybermen on TV. It is. There, there is a lack of consistency there, I think because they are a very difficult monster to get hold of as a, as a concept. The, the Daleks, as cool a concept as they are, are really easy these bubbling lumps of hate inside a suit of armour that just goes around exterminating everything because they're space Nazis, basically. Like, it's not it's not hard to say these are robotic space Nazis and have someone go, I can do that. Whereas whereas the Cybermen are very hard. You know, what what is their motivation? What is their uh, background? Um, you know, how, how much do you pull in the body horror stuff? There, there are lots of different ways you can go with the Cybermen. Well, do we say they're space communists, Dave? Because everyone's got to be the same. Yeah. <laughs> I've certainly heard that interpretation given to them. Um, I think there is some merit in it. But I think given that we're on record as having Kit Peddler talk about his inspiration being what is the natural extension of the cybernetic process, uh, that is difficult to sustain, certainly conceptually. I, did, did they become similar than some stories yes but but i think i think we we need to say first and foremost it it was that logical extension of well where do cybernetics go okay we we now can replace certain organs with cybernetic uh replacements at what at, at, at what point do you lose your humanity what what percentage of your body needs to be human to remain human um and, and is the logical extension of that well we can replace the heart and the lungs when they get sick, why don't we just replace them before they get sick? And if we're replacing mm. the other organs, well, do we replace the brain? Like, like, like that's a that's a wonderful classic science fiction concept of take an idea and 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 take it further. And and the one thing I'll give the new series credit for is that they occasionally have asked the question, "What is the cybernetics of today?" Yes. So so they take that concept of everybody going around connected to the internet, wearing earpods, sort of absorbed in their own world, and say, right, let's take that a bit further. Uh, I don't think it lands quite as well as the cybernetics does, but I, I do give them credit for exploring those options. And, and maybe the story of the Cybermen in New Who is a story of explorations that just don't always land as well. They're, they're, they're trying to do something new and original, and it just never quite lands as well as it could, with a couple of exceptions. Yeah, well said. Look, should we move on to uh, other media? Look, let's let's do this. And you've noted down the first thing here, Rob, which is something that was a massive deal in fandom, certainly when I was very young, and that is David Banks's Cyberman book. 
Yeah, absolutely. I was so excited the first time and probably the second and third time I saw advertisements for this in Doctor Who Monthly. It was like, this book is coming. It's written by David Banks. Uh, you know, information on the Cybermen was reasonably thin on the ground. I mean, we knew sort of the Kit Peddler side of the story and then the real sort of uh, background of the Cybermen. But was there a uh, sort of a, a, a fictional backstory? Well, no, there wasn't much of one. You know, only what had been teased out of individual stories with, you know, a line here and a line there. Uh, and as we talked about, you know, even between the 60s and Revenge of the Cybermen, there's there's quite a difference in what's going on. So this was the first time that a coffee table, hard-covered book was going to come out with loads of information, in it, and that was very, very exciting. It, it was very exciting. It's helped by the fact that it is a gorgeous book. It's very well put together. It's got wonderful artwork all the way through it by Andrew Skilleter. Really, really wonderful artwork. But it's it's got three sections. One One section really talks about cybernetics and what inspired the Cybermen in a, in a real-world sense. Mm. Uh, one section talks about the cyber stories in a production background sort of sense. What was it like putting them together? And and David Banks particularly pulls on his own experiences of why they wear particular makeups and how particular decisions were made and how costumes worked. And, and, and they do a sort of a production thing. But the most famous section, the one that really captured my brain as a Doctor Who monster book, um, <laughs> nerdy, nerdy sort of 10, 11, 12 year old, however old I was when I first got it, is, as you said, this fictional narrative that links all the Cybermen stories together. It, it pitches an evolution of the Cybermen, the, the ones that were developed on Mondas, and then the splinter group that went away because they wanted to be harder, core, more pure Cybermen. So they went away and become the Cybermen that you see in the invasion, and they grow through and become the Trouton ones, and eventually they go into their tombs and then you know another one goes off to explore space and that's the ones that become the the revenge cybermen and and, and the last of the revenge cybermen meets up with the ones left over in the tombs and they merge to create the 80s cybermen like it's yeah. this wonderful <laughs> glorious conceited narrative that is so fanboyish and i love it so much yeah look well well said and i took a long time to get a copy of the book i didn't get it as a uh, 13 year old or 14 year old however whatever age i was at the time because you know it was it was a hardcover book shipping from the uk you just didn't do that in the late 80s it was it was just a foreign territory now i buy things online from the uk every other day of the week you know <laughs> but... yes no I, look i've i've got the locally printed paperback and i, I certainly did get it in a couple of years after it hit the shelves in the uk because yeah it, it was very expensive you sort of had to wait until there was a slightly discounted paperback locally printed version yeah. that we could afford yeah yeah so i'd looked at friends versions i'd borrowed a version from the library uh but now i'm happy to say i own a hardcover first edition of the cyberman book i'm very happy with it yeah look it, it is a wonderful book I, I can't recommend it highly enough now, Dave, uh, something else, and this is not a not a book. Uh, we're going to talk about a few books here, but this is an actual TV episode, but not of Doctor Who. It's of Torchwood. It's a Chris Chibnall story as well. Do you remember Cyberwoman? I definitely remember watching it. It's a very widely panned story. Let me ask you one question, Rob. Would this story be much, much better regarded, and, and potentially regarded as a very interesting and quite cool idea mm. if it wasn't for the terrible design of the Cyberwoman costume. Oh, oh, I think so, Dave. I think 
if this had a an element of body horror to it, you know, I know we've gone on about that a bit, but if this uh, lady was, you know, half in a cyber suit and half out of it, and you know, maybe had some, um, maybe was missing a limb, or I, I, I'm not trying to be gross or you know, well, I, I think scare listen, our listeners, but you know, I, I, I think listen from the end of Attack of the Cybermen. Yeah, I mean that's fair. Uh, just just something nasty. Whereas the the outfit is very, very sexy, or it's meant to be sexy. It's yeah. it's someone's idea of what sexy is, but in reality, <laughs> it it actually doesn't look that sexy. I'll, I'll qualify that. It shows a lot of flesh. It's it's a very weird thing. I think it's just like those early days of Torchwood. Let's be let's be sexy and let's you know be different to doctor who and it just it falls into that sort of rabbit hole and it just makes a mess of what yeah actually could have looked a lot better yeah and it's actually a little bit embarrassing to watch because there's just this woman walking around in a cyber bikini because why not yeah when when as i said the the idea of somebody being partially cybernized like like that's a really cool concept to hang something off and where is their loyalty now, and how how does a loved one feel about somebody who's gone through that process? You know, it's it's, it's there's a lot of good in there. Plus, there's a cool pterodactyl. It's <laughs> it just yeah, it, its reputation I think is almost entirely from the look, and that's a fair judgment, frankly. Yeah, absolutely. I haven't got much more to say about it. It's it's not a great episode of Torchwood, and the design is woeful. Absolutely. So in the wilderness years, the Cybermen did pop up as well. Unlike the Daleks, which Virgin never got the rights to do in the New Adventures of the Missing Adventures, uh, they did have the ability to use the Cybermen. Uh, used very sparingly, though. They didn't mm. come up. They, they didn't sort of become substitute Daleks. Uh, they get used in the New Adventure Iceberg, which is a McCoy mm-hmm. story, written by David Banks. I think this is a really fun adventure. And look, it is very continuity heavy. Uh, David Banks draws from his... Cyberman book uh, narrative and chronology and, and, and uses that. But the premise is very much that the Cybermen who have were left over from the invasion in the invasion uh, have crashed down in the polar region and they've sort of been building up a project to start and start again. And, and, and it goes from there. It's got some really cool features and the Cybermen are really scary. I really like this book. Yeah, yeah, and it's not one I've read, but it has a notorious reputation, so I'm, I'm looking forward to reading it at some stage. It, it is also the one that has got some pretty excessive use of bad language. That's um, what I'm and, thinking of. Yeah, and, and, and was the one after which they said, okay, we need to actually pull this back a bit. But it's a shame it's remembered for that, because that is actually only a very minor part of what is a very good story. Uh, and the other is one that you bought recently, Rob. I have bought recently, still haven't read, but I've heard your glowing words about it, Dave, and I do look forward to reading it. And that is, of course, The Missing Adventure, The Killing Ground, which is a Colin Baker story set after Trial of a Time Lord, so when he's got his new companion, Grant, and they go to Grant's home planet, which was a cyber, basically, farm, where they had colonies of humans that they essentially allowed to breed and multiply and grow and once a year they'd come take the biggest and the strongest and the best of them so they could go off and become Cybermen. It's a chilling concept and what is really interesting is that the premise of it is then well the humans say to beat the Cybermen we need to kind of beat them at their own game so they create their own suits of Cybernized armor and and, and it goes from there and I, I have to mention 
and I have mentioned this before, so apologies to long-term listeners who are sick of me going on about how good this is, but <laughs> but, but the notorious scene of somebody narrating their cybernization is one of the most memorable in the range. It is a really good use of Cybermen, and Colin's Doctor going up against them, I think, is a really good idea. Yeah. Would it make a good TV episode? Oh, uh, it would, but it would have to be done with a, a PG rating and go out after 8 o'clock. You, you, you couldn't do that for... Sunday tea time viewing. You, you, you absolutely couldn't. Okay. Moving into the PDA range, Dave, these are the past Doctor Adventures. Essentially, the MAs, just when they moved to BBC Books, there is a story called Illegal Alien. And if I asked you, you know, picture a Doctor and a female companion, it's uh, World War Two. it's the Blitz, and, and something mysterious has fallen from the sky, would you be thinking of perhaps... The Empty Child and the Doctor Dancers. <laughs> you could be very much, yes. You could be. But no, this is the plot of Illegal Alien. And it's not really like the, the Empty Child and the Doctor Dancers. It's just that premise sort of seems similar. Uh, I think this is everything that Silver Nemesis could have been. Because, I mean, it's got the Doctor and Ace. It's got Nazis. It's got Cybermen. This is how you do it. And indeed, I think this was even touted to be a story for the 1990 season and uh, just didn't get up. Maybe the, the script or the uh, the treatment didn't even come along too much, but it was certainly a thought in the author's mind at the time, I know, and it could have it could have been great, I think. Yeah, so very, very quickly, Mike Tucker did write a submission to Andrew Cartmel around about the time that season 26 was in production. There you he, go. He, he sent it in anonymously uh, and then was talking to Ben Aronovich, and he said, hey, I've seen the script, would you have a look at it? And, Ben Aronovich said, oh, yeah, sure. And he said, look, here's, here's my thoughts. And Mike Tucker said, well, actually, I wrote it. He said, oh, look, well, if you did it, mate, let me have a second read and, like, really give you a lot of insight into it because um, Cartman was pretty busy, actually, you know, script editing the series. Hmm. Um, and, and, and out of that, Tucker got some very, you know, blunt advice about what worked and didn't. Um, he was going to pitch it for season 27. There was no 27. So, yeah, later on he turned the concept into a book. And it's a it's a very fun story. It, it uses the Trout near Cybermen. It puts them into World War II London. And, and yeah, it gives McCoy and, and the and, and Ace a good adventure with the Cybermen. It, it's a good book. That was one of the things I liked about it, you know, because on television the Cybermen keep evolving and stuff, whereas I liked seeing a Doctor with an older... Cybermen opposite them, which is also the case in Killing Ground, right? That's right, yes. Yeah, yeah. Uh, moving on from the PDAs, the NSAs have a story called Plague of the Cybermen, which is a Matt Smith and the Cybermen story. I own the book. I've not read it, uh, so I can't really comment on it. I don't think you have any NSAs, do you, Dave? Uh, no, I haven't, no. No. Uh, which really just leaves big finish, and I don't think we can end this part of the, uh, the the Cyberman feature without mentioning spare parts for Big Finish, which is possibly the most famous Big Finish story ever. I think people who barely know Big Finish seem to know spare parts. It is a fantastic story, and it's a Davo story. It is very good. Uh, I think it falls apart a bit in the last episode, and I know that I'm, I'm, I'm in a minority when I say that. Um, but yes, the first three parts are excellent. Yeah. And, um, and, and it gives the Davison crew something to do and it, it it does purport to be that genesis of the Cyberman story and delivers pretty well on that concept I think it's the story that a lot of fans wish we could have had well we sort of had it in World Enough in Time we had the spooky hospital we had the decrepit sort of landscape and town and stuff you know there, there were elements of spare parts in World Enough in Time don't you worry 
Oh, absolutely. But that came after Spare Parts. Uh, I, I think Spare Parts' reputation comes from the fact that at the time... Oh, yes. There, there was nothing like it. Nothing at all. Nothing and nothing at all. Uh, similar to that NSA Plague of the Cybermen, something else I haven't uh, seen but I'm well aware of, there are two series of a Cyberman uh, series on Big Finish not involving the Doctor at all. Uh, and these seem quite quite interesting, possibly quite political, Dave. I don't know if you've had a listen to these at all. I haven't, but they're ones I've, I've long thought about buying. Uh, I'm in the same boat as you, Rob. I think the next time I do a big finish buy, they'll probably be in the batch that I buy, but I don't do those buys very often. Yeah. Um, but, but, yeah, very curious to hear what Big Finish does with the Cybermen. Yeah, my take on those is without being encumbered with having to write the Doctor into the story, I think there could be some really interesting stuff going on there. Yeah, I, I think so too. Mm. Um, maybe some listeners who have read them will write in and give us a couple of uh, comments for others to hear about. That would be very cool. Yeah, I'd appreciate it. So, Dave, in summary... You know, we've, we've talked around the, the eras, we've talked around the stories, we've talked around concepts, we've mentioned Kit Peddler's ideas, we've, we've covered a lot of ground in not very long uh, an episode. In summary, what do we think of the Silver Giants? I think when they land, they're phenomenally good. Yes. I think that they are a much tougher concept to land than a lot of other monsters are, and that perhaps people appreciate that they are. Mm-hmm. Uh, And I think that they do rise and fall a lot on the quality of the story around them in a way when the Daleks can perhaps boost a story or perhaps the production team goes all uh, all, all out on one of their stories. But at their best, there are a lot of Cybermen classics. Whether they use the Cybermen well or they just use them as robots, at the end of the day, I actually don't care that much. I can nuance it a bit and talk about it. But look, just go through... Tenth Planet, Moonbase, Tomb, Wheel, Invasion, Earthshock, Attack, um, World Enough and Time, you know, even into the Simon, which I like, Rise of Simon, which I, I get the adventure of, I quite like Nightmare and Silver. There, there's a lot of just really, really, really good Simon stories out there, and they they deserve their reputation. Rob, you started this conversation, and I know you've got a big soft spot for the Silver Giant, so mm. I'll give the last word to you. Thank you, Dave. I, I'm thrilled that each era has good Cybermen stories. For a long time, it looked like New Who might have let the team down because uh, there wasn't really too much emerging there until World Enough and Time. But now that we have that, we can look at the 60s being brilliant, Revenge in the 70s not being too bad, the 80s having, you know, its own appeal, and finally New Who having its own great story. So, yes, uh, there has been great stories in all these eras, but they do, in between some of these stories, do drop down a bit. They do rise and fall, as you say, and that's disappointing. I like, I believe, the concept of the Cybermen that I have in my head more so than some of the stories I watch, and I look forward to each new Cybermen story coming up, and there's another one coming up in you know this next season of, of Whitaker. I look forward to seeing if they can excite me again. You know, that, that's that's the beautiful thing. Just like there'll always be another Doctor, there will always be another Cyberman story at some stage. Uh, and you just see if it appeals or not. Because I'm sure some of these stories we've slated or, or aren't too keen on, other people absolutely love. You know, and even for me, I, I don't particularly like Nightmare and Silver, yet you do. So, you know, it's horses for courses sometimes. And, and once again, if you're a listener who disagrees with our views on these, please... 
uh, write us in and pr- prompt some further discussion. We would love to hear that. But no, Rob, I, I agree with what you've said there. And um, I do think that Jodie Whittaker versus the Cybermen has a huge amount of potential and that's something I'm quite looking forward to seeing. Yeah, she's small. She can play scared, maybe. I, I, I don't know how that will play out. You know, uh, I particularly don't know how they'll come up against her companions. Oh, let's not speculate. Let's move on. Yeah, let's move on. <laughs> Dave, before we get on to some listener emails, I thought we'd have a really quick chat because the Picard series, the Star Trek Picard series, is coming closer. And at San Diego Comic Con, they did drop a trailer, which showed us a lot more than the initial teaser trailer, which was just a pair of boots walking around a vineyard while a lady asked questions. Uh, she sounded like a psychologist or something, and it was like, mm, okay, I don't know, don't know what this is doing, but we now have a proper trailer. What are your brief thoughts? I liked the trailer a lot. My biggest fear when I heard about the concept of the Picard series being put together a year ago or now, my biggest fear was that you can't make Star Trek The Next Generation today. If you make it like Star Trek The Next Generation, it will be so not of this time that no mass audience will watch it. If, on the other hand, you make it like a television series in 2019 would normally be, no Next Generation fan is going to feel as though this is the same series and this mm. is the same character. and It's, it, it's not going to be what they wanted. I, th- I think people are part, were initially expecting... Star Trek The Next Generation Season 8. Mm-hmm. I, and, and it can't be that. Having seen the trailer, I feel they've blended those two things actually quite well. And, and maybe my cynicism was misplaced. There's clearly going to be a lot of Next Generation stuff in there, but it's also going to feel like a modern TV show. But I've, I've got a question on that that I'm going to ask you, Rob, without notice. Okay. But I'll let you give your thoughts first. Yeah, look, I looked at the trailer and I thought, you know what, this looks good. But trailers can be deceptive. And at the (laughs) same time, at the same time, I noted a lot of fan service in the in the piece, whether it was pulling, you know, a drawer out and it's got all bits of data in it or whether it was Seven of Nine appearing, or whether it was the Borg Cube, or whatever. I, I know the Borg play an important part in Picard's psyche, because, you know, he obviously was converted at one stage, and, you know, yes. that was a big part of his storyline. So I get why that would be a big deal to him. He seems a bit traumatised. I'm thinking, oh, God, are we going down this Luke Skywalker, Last Jedi path, where in their dotage these people get a bit traumatised because this is another sort of J.J. Abrams offshoot sort of looking after this. Are they doing that same sort of thing? Oh, God, I don't know. So I do have this sort of tension, but at the same time, it looked good. It has potential. I'm I'm crossing my fingers for it, but at the same time, I know that Netflix passed on this and there's been a lot of, you know, weird stuff happening behind the scenes and production team people moving about or being sacked or whatever. And it's like, oh, has it really been a happy thing to work on? I don't know. Oh, God, Dave, it could go either way. And I don't know. It absolutely could. But at the end of the day, am I more excited and more confident about it having seen the trailer? The answer is yes. So job well done. But my question to you, Rob, is this. Mm. Having now seen the trailer and got a sense of what this show is going to be like, could you imagine Q turning up? Uh, I like the character Q. I'm wondering if you're asking me because you, you wonder if he'd, he'd actually fit into this sort of scenario or not. That, 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 that's right. I think Q is a wonderful example of the sort of thing that worked in The Next Generation. Right, uh, yep. 
But but for example, when they tried to transplant him into Deep Space Nine, totally didn't work. Was 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 disastrous. Put him in the Voyager, he worked. Yeah. And so I think that for me, a real litmus test of whether this captures the spirit of the next generation is: could I imagine Q turning up? Hmm. Just on what I've seen of it, I don't think it would work. No, me either, which is interesting. So, uh, yeah, look, see what they deliver. Interesting. All right, let's move on from that, because that was only going to be a brief chat, and I'm sure when we see more trailers or more to do with Picard, we'll talk about it some more. Uh, Do you want to lead off with this first one, Dave? An email we have here from our friend Ham Fisted Bat Vendor. He says, I assume it's a he. He or she says... (laughs) I, I don't know if Ham is a male or female first name. I, I don't know either. I've, I've never called a child Ham before. No. Enjoyed your recent podcast. Always good to shine a little light on the underrated or, in this case, simply overlooked. The following came to mind as I was listening. One, although not quite deep in the shadows, I've long thought that Derek Martinus deserves to be up there on the proverbial director's podium. Spearhead from space, evil of the Daleks, or what we can see of it anyway, the Ice Warriors, definitely a chap who knew how to utilise the technology of the studio and the opportunities provided by film. Um, really good call there, uh, Mr. Mr. Vendor. Um, very, very, very good stories there. On the recent episode of uh, Spacefall, a Blake 7 podcast, Richard and I mentioned an episode of Blake 7 that Martinus directed, and he, we gave him a lot of praise in that as well. So, mm. yeah, interesting call. Uh, two, speaking of the evil of the Daleks... It's justly known for many things, script, design, performances, etc. But one aspect that seems to get a little less attention is Dudley Simpson's incidental music. I could be wrong, of course. I'm aware there's a doco out there on one of the DVDs, which may well mark this one out. Again, really good call. That's a really good Dudley Simpson script. I agree. Um, really chilling. That that music that you get in the end of episode one, the reprise of part two, which we do see. Yeah, really, really good. Yeah, great score. Three. Oh, and sticking with the 60s, I agree with you about Vicky. Yeah. I've, <laughs> I've overlooked Marina O'Brien's performances myself until fairly recently. Keep up the great work. Always a pleasure to listen to. Well, thank you very much. Uh, yeah, some good, interesting thoughts. Yeah, some really, really good points there. Uh, our second email is from John Shaw, and I've got to say up front here, Dave, John sent this to us uh, probably an episode or two ago, and it sat in my email box, and I just forgot to, to mention it in past episodes. So apologies, John, we're getting to it now. I hope you're still listening. Hi, lads. Welcome from the land of Terror of the Zygons, better known as Inverness in Scotland. Oh, a lovely part of the world, Dave. One of my favourite cities in the world is Inverness. I love Inverness. Mm. I found your great podcast via Spacefall, the Blake 7 podcast. Love that show as well. Hey. Thank thank you. (laughs) I thought I had to say I can't applaud your style enough. Great topics and it's always done in a positive manner. Social media is full of haters that like nothing better than to hate on everything, but not you guys. It's always a pleasure to listen to you and then rewatch a story that I may not have seen for years with a new appreciation thanks to your show. Cheers, lads. That's pretty nice. No, thank you. That's a really lovely thing to say, so thank you for that. Yeah, I, I love the thought that we, we you know, rabbit on here, Dave, in, in Australia, and someone in, in Scotland pulls a, a DVD off their shelf because we talked about something. That's mind-blowing, yeah, it's, actually. It's pretty cool, yeah. Hum- humbling, humbling, yeah. Uh, question for you. Do you watch the original transition versions or the special edition versions with CGI? Example, the Planet of Fire Omnibus on Disc 2. 
Uh, generally speaking, I will watch the original one. I think that the re-edited versions that Fiona Cummins did are really interesting projects and, and, and really interesting experiments. Uh, I'm not saying they're better or worse, but I think if I want to watch the story, I, I do prefer the original. I'm tending to go with you. I do watch the original, but I also go when I ever, whenever I got a new DVD, I'd always go and watch the new effects just to see what they were like. But generally, I watch the shows as they went out. Exceptions might be or Curse of Fenric, maybe. The extended version's quite good of that. That That is true. Yeah, there are a few where I'll put the special effects on, but in terms of the complete re-edits, yeah, I, I tend to stick with the original. Mm. Uh, continuing on with John, he says, I have been a fan of Doctor Who and Blake Seven since I was a boy in the 70s, thanks to my father working as a carpenter for a company on the outskirts of Glasgow who made the sets for the BBC. So if you ever do an episode on how shaky the sets were, remember, they may not have travelled in time, but they did do over 400 miles in a Ford Transit. <laughs> That's really cool. Thank you for telling us about that, John. That's really, really cool and fun. I want to know if uh, John's father ever brought, you know, offcuts home from the uh, from the job. Yeah, I don't know. Maybe. That, w- that would have been cool. Yeah. Yes. Anyway, that brings us to the end of the episode. Uh, thank you so much for listening. I believe next episode, Dave, you might not be around. Uh, no, in a week's time, I'm heading off to Italy for three weeks. So... I won't be here next month, sorry. <laughs> no, but I'll be back in two months' time, and maybe it's time to look at a, maybe a season special after that point, Rob. I I think so. Maybe at the end of the next episode, we'll ask our listeners to tell us what season you'd like us to go in-depth for in our September episode. Yeah, that's right. I'm, I'm up for anything myself. Great. Yeah, me too, me too. Fantastic. Well, look, until then, I've been Rob. And I've been Dave. We'll see you next time on the Doctor Who Show. Goodbye. Bye. You've been listening to the Doctor Who Show, the podcast where too much Doctor Who is barely enough. Subscribe to us on iTunes or listen through the website at www.thedwshow.net. Write to us at hello at thedwshow.net or send us a quickie on Twitter at thedwshow. Facebook.com forward slash The DW Show is also a good place to find us if you're so inclined. Our version of the Doctor Who theme arranged by George Locke. Look him up on YouTube, folks. This podcast is intended for entertainment and informational purposes only. Doctor Who, all names and sounds, and any other related items are trademarks and or copyrights of the BBC. All other trademarks and trade names are properties of their respective owners. The official Doctor Who website can be found at www.bbc.co.uk forward slash Doctor Who. So at this point, if anybody hears this tape, uh, Rob has dropped out. I, I couldn't hear him. Uh, I have disconnected the Skype, and now I'm hoping that... Oh, hang on. No, there's a message from Rob. Skype seems to have crapped out. Oh, dear. <laughs>